Welcome into the LFDC podcast. Today's clip is going to be a bit different. On Valentine's Day, we held a fellowship service. We call it our agape service. We heard from each of the three elders. Pastor Jesse, who's over preaching, teaching, and vision. Prophetess Rachel, who's over prayer, prophecy, and children's ministries. And Elder Stephen, who is over praise and worship. We hope you're blessed today. So today I wanted to briefly share with you um, about the word agape. Now we call this our agape service, uh, a service of love, but I don't think we often get too deep into this word other than, well, it's the Father's love. Agape love is God's love. Um, And I was thinking about this um, when we were discussing the elders and who's sharing what, I feel like my mic is cutting out, is it? Battery. Hello? Check, check. Yeah, it turned off, so it might be the battery. Um, So I'm going to share a Logos word, which is from the written word. Um, Rachel will be sharing, um, because she's our prophet, prophetic in nature, our rhema word, which is a spoken word. And then Steve, who is... um, you know, we're st- we're, he's kind of our Swiss Army knife. We're still trying to figure out what tools are best to use. Um, but we know for a fact that he is going to be over our worship and liturgy, if you will. And so we asked him today to speak on that. Um, I'm gonna just going to keep turning it back on until they get me batteries. Um, but I wanted to start with this idea of agape and talk briefly just personally uh, on Luke. And for the past week, in fact, since last Sunday, for some reason, he has slightly preferred me to his mother. And uh, it's been hard on Cece. And not really. She's like, thank the Lord I get a break from this hooligan. Uh, For this past week, it's only been a week that this has happened, but he's kind of preferred me. And my wife and I were thinking, why is this? And I realized my son... You guys may not like this comparison, but he's kind of like a dog. And uh, You give him treats? I've been giving him treats. That's exactly right. Whenever I get food, he starts to crawl toward me, and I give him little bits of my food. So little bits of chicken, just the white of the meat, little bits of potato from within the fry. I've even given him little bits of burger. Um, I just give him little bits of whatever I'm having. And, uh, and I think that is where this is rooted. <laughs> and Luke has just had a slight preference. And the other thing I've been doing, which is probably not the best thing to be doing, um, but when he's hard to put down to sleep, and now that he can stand on his own with support, he likes to, once we put him into bed, he likes to try to stand up and he just waits on the railing and just stands there um and sometimes he'll fall not as often now and so we like to put him back down well i'm just a little lazy when it comes to this and so rather than put him back down put him back down put him back down put him back down which is what cc does in her diligence of being a good mother i like to just say okay dude let's just cuddle till you fall asleep and then i'll put you down and so i think that has also played a part in his preference for me you know, what Luke sees as, oh, I love my dad, my wife and I recognize as being a lazy dad. Um, so this past week, he's had slight preference to me, which I've appreciated, but I also acknowledge isn't founded on the best principles. And so with me being over the logos, I wanted to look at 
the logos behind the word love. And so we look at the four types of love in Greek. There's actually some argue seven, but uh, the four that primarily are important to us. Uh, interestingly enough, only two of them are found in Scripture. The other two are just common Greek words of love around those times. And so the four types you have agape, which is the Father's love, and we're going to get into that more deeply here in a moment. And then you've got storge, which is a guardian, protector, a, a familial love, so the love of a brother, the love of a sister, the love of your parent, the love of your son, the love of your daughter. Uh, so that's storge. Um, philia, or phileo, as some people call it, is uh, a friendship, a love between brothers. And so that's the other love you see in the Word of God is, is philia, which is actually the antonym of phobia. And so it's a it's a it's a, it's a friendship, love between um, like-minded people. And then you have eros, which is a sensuous love. People today like to translate this more into the love between you know, husband and wife. But that's actually not a great uh, understanding of it, because eros is where we get the word erotic, which uh, if you were to study in those times, eros was actually deeply rooted in paganism and uh, sensuality and orgies and um, was equivalented or was uh, was the equivalent of lust and 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 essentially bad things it's not a good love it was it was it was a bad love and so people like say oh eros like the love between a husband and wife I'm like I don't think that that's actually a good <laughs> good thing it's not when you actually look at it um, so you do not see eros in the Bible you do not see storgi which is the the parent-to-child type of love. You don't see either of those types of love in the Word of God. The only two loves you see are agape, which is the love of the Father, and philea, uh, which is the love of a brother or friendship love. And there is a big difference. And uh, what I want to... Wow, I did not put the, uh, the, uh, the location, the address of this. One second. It's an... I don't know which of the Gospels I referenced. I'm trying to remember which one I did. I want to give you guys. Um, John chapter 21 is what I'm referencing. Verse 15 is where I'm starting. Um, and so what you see here is the story of Jesus asking Peter, once he has come back, if he loves him. And I think we all, if you remember, uh, Rachel has spoken about this in the past, about this idea, and I'm going to get into it once again just briefly, and then we're going to flip over to another passage briefly, and I'm going to let you eat. Uh, so in John chapter 21, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon. Now, interestingly, he had already coined his name Peter, and so the author admits he, he talks to Simon Peter, but then Christ says Simon. And Simon, if you look into the main meaning, it means to hear to know and to understand. So I actually think it's interesting to argue that perhaps he wasn't calling him by name here because he had already changed his name to Peter. But he's saying, you who are supposed to hear and to understand this, son of John, do you love agape me? And I think oftentimes that's the question of our fathers, do you agape me? More than these, 
and, and the, the, the idea of more than these could be threefold, we're not entirely sure. It could be, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Or do you love me more than you love them? Or do you love me more than everything, all of this? And, uh, and he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In English, this gets lost because he says, you know that I phileo you, phileo, if you will, you. And so Christ says, do you agape love me? <laughs> and Peter responds, yes, Jesus, I phileo love you. Please understand, agape love is not phileo love. There's a big difference. Agape love is founded in the Father. Phileo love is a love between brothers or friendship love. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He says it again. And he said to him, tend my sheep. In verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time, Jesus changes the word, and he says, do you phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? There's a couple things that are important to note in this. One, Peter was likely grieved, you have to assume, because Christ asks him three times if he loves him. And it reminded him that he'd rejected Christ three times. This is after this has occurred. So it reminded Peter that he rejected Christ three times. And here he is, once again being asked three times, do you love me? But I also like to think that it grieved him because Christ changed his language. He said, do you agape me? Do you agape me? And he said, okay, fine. Do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Not once does Peter admit he agape loves Christ. And that's because agape is deeper. When we look at the word agape, when you look at the Greek word agape, when you really study it, you find that there is no, it's not a feeling and it's not an emotion. I don't believe in running from feelings or emotions, but I also don't believe that you need to live in them. You need to live in truth. And agape, the love of the Father, when we talk about this word, it is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. So it's, I just love God so much. You phileo God. If you're feeling something, you feel a deep love for God, that's phileo love. You love him like Peter loved him. Great. Agape love is different. Agape love isn't rooted in feelings or emotions you can have filet mixed in if you will, but it's not rooted in that. And so when you look at the original language of agape, it's an unconditional love. When we say unconditional love, when we say it's the love of the Father, we like to then put conditions on it. He unconditionally loves us if we don't sin. He unconditionally loves us, but yet he only loves those who accept Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. No, unconditional love. It's a goodwill. And something else that if you study this word, it really pointed toward this. It pointed, it pointed toward a servitude in which you expect nothing in return. Absolutely nothing. God loves us because he, in such a way 
that he, he, in his goodwill, in his unconditional love, without condition, without foreknowledge, without any other thing, he wanted to give us something expecting nothing in return. And so when Christ is asking Peter, do you love me? He's saying, do you, are you willing to give me everything and expect nothing in return? He's not asking, do you feel a deep love for me? He's saying, are you willing to give everything for me and expect not one iota of anything back in return? And he says, but God, I have such a deep love for you. I feel it in my heart. And he says, no, are you willing to give everything for me and expect nothing in return? Serve me, serve me. He says, God, I, I feel such a deep love for you. Okay, do you have such a deep love for me? And he says, he was grieved because he understood there was deeper love than just a feeling or an emotion. There was a deeper love. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, something I didn't put in my notes, but something I love that I read this week was R.C. Sproul said, I hate that people love this chapter because if you really understand agape love, you'll realize that this is damning. The kids get scared by that word. It's not a curse word. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13 is damning. We like to look at this and say, yes. But if we have a true understanding of agape love, we realize that we fall short of agape love. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, if you look at 12, you look at 14, they deal a lot with uh, the charismatic gifts that the church of Corinth is dealing with. And there's a lot of uh, dissension because of the gifts. And the thing is, when you look at chapters in the Bible, I think it's important, especially for the teenagers to know this. A lot of adults will probably know this, but there's not chapters. We added those in. This is a letter. So 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, if you were to read this in context, it makes a lot more sense. This was all one thought. It wasn't broken in, oh, now I'm taking a break and I'm writing this, okay? It dealt heavily with the gifts, and it dealt heavily with uh, prophecy and tongues and things of that nature. And when you look at uh, him just interjecting this, this, if you will, chapter of love, it actually goes hand in hand with everything else. Because the, the problem with the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, was they were pursuing the gifts over the giver. And I think that is a, a deep error in so many circles today that we need to understand we need to pursue the giver and not the gifts. And we know we can also look at parables such as, or te teachings such as, where Christ says, is not the father a giver of good gifts? If you, being a, a terrible father, can, your son asks you for a bread and you give him a stone, no, you give him a piece of bread. How much better is your father in heaven? So there's nothing wrong with asking the giver for a gift. That's not what he's saying. But what he is prioritizing is that you cannot choose the gift over the giver. You need to pursue the giver and then also ask for gifts. That's okay. So in verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels that have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, right? You got the charismatic and the reform camp right there. The prophecy and the knowledge. And if I have all the faith as to remove mountains, I don't think anyone in this room has removed a mountain. Tell me if I'm wrong. But have not love, agape love, I am nothing. So when we read this, we're not reading, oh, if you just don't have a, a, a love that feels so strong in your heart, then you're nothing. That's not what it's saying. It's saying a deeper love than that. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, 
but have not best, I gain nothing. R.C. Sproul also said once, he was looking in the mirror, and he said, what if I'm looking at a man? Thank you, Lukey. R.C. Sproul looked in the mirror and said, what if I'm looking at a man who's on his way to hell? And he's like, no, surely not. I preach, I teach, I bring forth the gospel message, I cling to Christ. But then he was reminded, his, his spirit reminded him of this passage where it does not matter if you do any of those things if you have not love. And that's why he said, he said, I, I think it's crazy that people love 1 Corinthians 13 and love to quote it because if they understand, understood the severity of what this meant, we'd be a lot more loving than we are now. A lot more loving. You can't help but compare this when you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in context together. You can't help but wonder about Matthew 7, 21, where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not those people. But the one who does the will of my Father. That's agape love. The one who does the will of my Father. And those replied, those people, and that day they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Come on, if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 together in context and look at this word love, you'll realize it doesn't matter about your prophecy. It doesn't matter about your knowledge. It doesn't matter about your faith if you have not love, agape love, which is a love that says it's deeper than feelings. It's a desire to serve him and know him and accomplish his purpose without expecting anything in return. We like to think, oh, I preach the gospel. God will uh, make sure I have a car. He might. But agape love says, I will preach the gospel even if it means I'm killed. I don't need anything in return because I'm going to do the will of the Father without expecting anything in return. Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not uh, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. One person reads that and says, yeah, I check all those boxes. I'll call you a liar. The importance in understanding the love of the Father is that without any, anything, he, he, agape, loves us, you guys. He loves us in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross for us, expecting nothing in return. The reason there is return is because we agape him back. I hope you guys got that. It's just, to me, it's so important to understand he agape us. He loved us so much that without expecting anything in return, he did something for us. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't emotion. It was a choice. When people say love is a verb, that's closer to agape than a feeling. It's more than that still. But the reason there is a return on his agape love is because we agape him back. Not because we phileia him back. That is what I have for you guys today from the Logos. might seem a little intense, but I felt like it was appropriate to talk about agape love on the agape service. So that's my Logos word for you guys today. Uh, we're going to break bread from this, so I'll, I'll go ahead and pray for the, uh, the food.
I hope this uh, compelled you to uh, understand, hopefully, even if you want to study it out more for yourself, study it out. Study 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 all together in unison. We need love more than we need anything else. And I'm not talking about Philea, I'm talking about agape. All right, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you um, to be able to get together with my friends and family, this community, God. I just pray that you bless the food, bless the hands that prepared it, bless the people serving it. God, that we may, uh, may eat till we're full and be blessed by it, God. I just pray that we can have some good fellowship today with one another. I look forward to hearing from uh, Prophet Rachel, Prophetess Rachel, and uh, Elder Stephen, God. I just pray that you use them to uh, bring forth your word and uh, let us be good recipients of your word and hear what you are having to say to us today. God, I also pray for Jarrell and whatever he has prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Anyway, I'm going to get started. Um, <clears throat> so as you guys know, things have changed a lot here at Living Faith. Now we have, Jesse's the pastor, the senior pastor, and we have a pastoral board, which is a little bit different for us, which is Jesse and um, me <laughs> and Steve. And Steve is over worship, and, I, and I'm overseeing children and the prophetic I'm pretty excited about doing that. Um, I'm excited about overseeing the children again, actually. That's been something I've been wanting to jump in and do for a while, but um, I haven't been in a place where I've been able to. And I just have a new job recently, which kind of fits into that position. I don't know if a lot of you know, but I just uh, started overseeing student teachers. I'm a clinical supervisor for student teachers. So that actually fits right into overseeing children's ministry here. So it's perfect. I think God knew what he was doing in that position. I'm actually loving the job. So uh, that's what I'm doing here. And then I'll start stuff up with the prophetic soon. But I did want to talk about the Rhema Word of God. Jesse talks a lot about the Logos. And if you haven't noticed, he's a little bit passionate. And he, he talks a lot about the um, teaching of the Word of God and and taking it apart line upon line and getting very much into <clears throat> knowing the word. And I think it is something that charismatic churches get hit a lot with is people don't know the word very well. And it's a big problem. And it is something that, you know, we have to know. I mean, we have to accept. And we have to, as a charismatic church, know the word of God. Because as a prophet, you cannot be a prophet without knowing the logos. They are, they are, um, you cannot prophesy without knowing the Logos word because they are, they're linked together. <laughs> so anyway, I want to talk about the Rhema word of God. In Matthew 4, 4 is the first mention of the word of, of the Rhema. And whenever you're doing Bible study, you need to know the first mention. In Matthew 4, 4, it says, it says Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we know that the rhema word is considered the, the spoken word of God, and the logos is considered the written word of God. But when Jesus is giving us his example of the, of the spoken word of God, he is quoting the written word of God. And he said, This rhema word of God is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this word that proceeds, which is the now word that proceeds from the mouth of God, is the Logos word. He says, it is written. So how did he fight Satan? He fought Satan with the Logos word, but it was a now word from the Logos. 
It was, it is written. This is a word that proceeds from the mouth of God. <clears throat> so we have to fight, or we get our rhema from the Logos word. That is why it is scary sometimes in prophetic circles and why people get afraid of the prophetic because a lot of times you get a lot of prophetic words because the Lord said to me or thus saith the Lord, you need to sell your house and break up with your boyfriend, you know, things like that, where we need to know that according to scripture, according to what the Lord said in the word, the rhema word is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God and the rhema word that came from the mouth of God that Jesus spoke was it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Every prophetic word that we give should line up with the word of God. It should not veer from the word of God. It should be lined up with the word of God. <clears throat> and Jesus gave us a perfect example of that. In Luke 1.37 is another example of, of Rhema where we kind of get out of line with the word of God. It says, for with God nothing shall be Impossible, And this is where he's speaking to Mary about how she's going to become pregnant with the Son of God. It says, for with God nothing shall be impossible. This word nothing is from the word rhema. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys know this. It's from the word rhema and from the word 3756 in the Greek, which means no or not. So, so it's not, no rhema, no rhema. Basically, it's telling you, for with God... Uh, the rhema, no rhema will be impossible. No rhema will be impossible. So a lot of times we want to say nothing shall be impossible. No thing shall be impossible. But what he's saying is no rhema shall be impossible. No word that God has given me shall be impossible. And so sometimes we have Christians running around, you know, they, you hear the name it and claim it, blab it, uh, blab it and grab it mentality of people saying well you know it says in the bible you know with god nothing shall be impossible so i'm going to say that that mansion on the hill is going to be my mansion so i'm just going to claim it nothing shall be impossible but he's saying no rhema shall be impossible so how do i get the rhema i have to get the word from the lord he has to speak the word for me and that word has to come from his word and i have to know that it is the word for me for this season for this time and then i that word no rhema shall be impossible for me at that time well, that's a whole lot of process to go through to know that that is your word. To know that this is what God spoke. For instance, coming into this building, <clears throat> it took a lot of faith. It took a lot of rhema. It took a lot of believing God. It took a lot of knowing that this was what God wanted us to do. We had to know that we had the rhema word from God, that this was the building, right? Yeah, there were other buildings that looked better, that looked bigger, that looked more promising, that had, but they were not the building that God wanted us in. This was the building, and we had to cling to that word and believe that no rhema shall be impossible. This was the rhema word, so we had to cling to the rhema word that God had said to us. And so when we get a rhema word, we have to be willing to hold on to it, to fight for it, to believe God for it, and cling to it. So when we have a rhema word... So what is a rhema word? It's a word that God breathes into our spirit and it lines up or, or, or is aligned with the logos word. He, he speaks through his logos. God always speaks through his written word. It tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this word again is rhema. So we first be, have to be able to hear. Hearing comes by the word of God. I believe that hearing, first of all, be, to be able to hear God, we have to know his logos. 
So you have to be in his word to be able to hear him. This is where the process of hearing God and knowing the rhema word of God and getting the rhema word of God and acting by faith and clinging to a word and believing God and moving by faith and seeing the miraculous and moving in the prophetic becomes difficult. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is the rhema. How do you get a rhema word of God? This is the whole thing. So our vision statement used to be hear and do, right? Hear and do. We hear God and we do what God says. How do you hear God? That's one of the most difficult things in Christianity is just to simply hear God. Because we, as American Christians, struggle to just hear God. We can get in our word, we can read our word 20,000 hours a day and never hear the voice of God. We can have it memorized inside and out and never really hear the voice of God. The Pharisees knew the word of God, but they didn't operate in the power of God because they didn't have the faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the rhema of God, the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now I can get into the logos, and I can study the logos, and I can memorize the logos, and I can have all kinds of knowledge of the logos, but until I learn to hear the voice of God, I'm not gonna move by faith, I'm not gonna move in the miraculous. I'm not going to move in the prophetic. I'm not going to have the rhema word of God. I'm not going to cling to the rhema word of God that's going to bring what God wants into my life. And I'm going to use the example of John MacArthur because there is a man who knows the word of God inside and out. But he is also a man that does not move in signs and wonders or the prophetic. He's also a man who said he didn't understand people who walked the floor for seven, ten hours a night wearing a hole in their carpet. He didn't understand that. Why? Because he doesn't understand the rhema word of God. Because that's what you have to do to get a rhema word of God. You have to spend time in the presence of God. You have to spend time. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's no shortcut to the rhema word of God but by spending time in his presence. It's a proceeding word. It's a now word that comes from spending time in his presence. I'll tell you, God, God <clears throat> teaches you things in his presence that you can't ever learn anywhere else. You can read the word to gain knowledge, but reading the word to gain intimacy is where you begin to understand the rhema word. Reading the word to gain relationship, spending time in his presence to know him is where you begin to get the rhema word, where he quickens a word in your spirit. And he says, this is the word. As you begin to pray and seek his face, and he brings the logos to your mind and says, this is the word for this situation. This is the word for this situation that I need you to pray. And you begin to pray that logos word into this situation, and you know it is this promise for this time. That's when you begin to see the power of God manifest. That is when you begin to see the miraculous things happen, is when you pray the logos word of God. The problem that's happening in the church, and I think that's why we don't see the miraculous, we don't see the prophetic, we don't see signs and wonders, is because we've disconnected the logos from the rhema. We've suddenly thought the rhema is simply just some prophetic word of what I get an impression of in my spirit, and we've disconnected it from the power of the written word of God. You see, you can't disconnect it. Prophecy is not separate from the logos. Prophecy is... is absolutely connected to the logos. You cannot be a prophet without knowing the word of God. You have to know the word of 
God to prophesy. Because God is not going to trust you to prophesy to his people if you do not care enough to know his word. Because his word is simply knowing him. Because it says in the beginning that, that, that there was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, if, if it tells us in the, that in the word that, that Jesus himself is the word, we would want to know the word. We would want to know everything about the word. We would want to become intimate with the word. We wouldn't want to discard any part of the word. Loving God is wanting to know his word. And wanting to know his word is wanting to be intimate with him. And God says he trusts his prophets. He, he does nothing without revealing it to his prophets. You see, therefore, his prophets would want to know him and would want to know his word. And there's a lot of craziness going on in prophetic circles right now, and we know this. <clears throat> and I could speak to that for a long time. But the truth is, the first sign of somebody who's, who's at least, well, the first thing you should look for in a prophet is somebody who knows the word of God. And I see a lot of rogue prophets, and I've seen it here, where people will be like, hey, I'm just new to this church, and I just got here yesterday, but I want to go out to you out in the parking lot and prophesy to you. Please, for the love of God, don't let anybody do that to you. <laughs> for everything that is holy, I beg of you, do not let somebody take you out in the parking lot that you just met and prophesy over you. Do you know that they know the word of God? No. Do you know the character of their life? The fruit of their life? No. You need to know the character and the fruit of someone's life before you let them prophesy over you. You need to know. You need to know something about them. We're having a lot of craziness with the prof prophetic right now. And there's never been a greater time than to start looking at the prophetic and start evaluating what do we need to fix in now. Those rhema words need to be aligned with the Logos word of God. We need to understand that nobody is above deception. Nobody. I don't care how high in the prophetic movement they are. There's nobody above deception. The minute you think you cannot be deceived, you are already deceived. Anyone who thinks they can't be deceived is deceived already. <clears throat> and I've heard so many people say, oh, no, 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 not me. I could never be deceived. I'm like, man, like, you're deceived. If you've never heard, yeah, I, I, I remember the first time I heard a demonic voice in prayer. Hmm. I know people are going to tell me, I've never heard a demonic voice in prayer. Nah, 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 I've never heard it. Oh, good for you. Good for you. You are clearly better than me. They will speak to you and they will deceive you. The devil himself masquerades as an angel of light to deceive you. To give you a false word. And believe me, the devil's not going to come in and say, I want you to pray a curse over somebody. He's going to say something that sounds a lot like the word of God. Because if you read Matthew 4, was the devil not quoting the word of God to deceive Jesus? Yeah. Right? Do you see a lot of Christians quoting the word of God to people? To condemn them. To judge them. Sometimes to make them feel validated in their sin. Right? God is love. God is love. You hear that all the time to validate everything. Yeah. Right? So we need to be careful. 
when, when we're talking about the rhema and the prophetic, that we're not using the rhema and the prophetic to lead people astray from God. So what is the rhema for today? Um, that was the thing that the Lord was speaking to me. <clears throat> um, the rhema for today, what the Lord spoke to me is that he is requiring a relentless pursuit of righteousness from his people. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be in right standing with God. That's what he's requiring. Why? Because right now, more than ever, there's, there's a spirit of deception that has gone out amongst the people, the church. Right? There's a separation in the church going on because there's a spirit of deception that has been unleashed upon the American church like never before. So he's requiring a relentless pursuit of righteousness from his people like never before. So what does it mean to be righteous? It means, what did he say about Abraham? He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It means to believe God, to be obedient to God. What keeps us from being in right standing with God is sin. Sin is one of the things, one of the greatest sins that we can walk in. And this is one of the things that God has been speaking to me a lot lately, is we don't really understand what separates us from God very well. I think in a way, we as a church, and I was just talking to, to the youth about this today. I was like, what does it look like to have a transformed life? Does it mean you're just quoting scripture all the time and carrying your Bible and telling people about Jesus? And they're like, yes. And I was like, what about Galatians? Where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love and kindness and joy and gentleness and self-control. What about that stuff? They're like, oh, that's my character. Because, you know, God's just doing this work in me. Um, there's just been something going on personally with me. I, I don't know. I guess that you can call it a crisis of faith. I've had four of them in my life. I'm going through my fourth one right now. <clears throat> um, the first one was my divorce. And I think the Lord asked me this question is, am I good? And I had to decide if God was good. My second one was when I had to start all over again after my divorce with nothing. I had to start with nothing after my divorce, and then I had to start again with nothing. And that was a time when God said, will you give me everything? Let everything go and give me everything. Your whole life, everything. I'm going to move you out of this state, and I'm going to give you a minimum wage job, and let's see, will you give me everything? Surrender your whole life to me. And I'm not going to tell you I just jumped and said yes on all of these. I didn't. I took some time to consider. And the third time was when my brother fell. And the church fell apart. And I think you all had a crisis of faith at that time. And the Lord asked me, will you follow me even if you follow me alone? Will you continue to follow me? And the thing he said to me was, I didn't promise you anybody would come with you. And the fourth one is now with my brother passing away. And he spoke, will you still follow me through your pain? And there are moments in life where God challenges you through your dark times and through crisis and through hard times, 
and he teaches you lessons that you couldn't know any other way. But what he really begins to teach you is what's important and what it really means to have faith in God. And you know, sometimes we look at people and we think faith in God means that they quote scripture and faith in God means that they look the part. But God really begins to give you revelation as you travel through this life with him. And as you cling to him through dark times, and you begin to see things a lot differently. And I realized, especially through this last one, that I don't see things like I used to. That faith in God, people who are people who really, really have had a transformed life, people who are really those remnant people don't look like what I thought they did. Because God looked at David and he said, I don't see as man sees, I look upon the heart. And you know, having this president that we've just had has taught me a lot too. Seeing so many people so quick to judge a man that had affairs, but who was fighting for the lives of the unborn, who was fighting to stop the genocide of babies, but who were so quick to fight to, to point fingers at him for his past affairs and, and so quick to, to, to righteously judge him, to come against him for his past sins and point the fingers at him. I could see the plank in their eyes as they're pointing at the speck in his eye. I could see so much differently. And I thought, wow, things are really changing in my perception, you know? What, what God sees so sin hinders our relationship with God. Pursuing this relentless righteousness, this relentless pursuit of righteousness with God doesn't look like what I thought it once did. It's really just looking at my heart. I don't care what you see. I don't care what you see. I care what God sees. That's really what it is. I don't need to tell you what I've done for God. You know, because there's so many people running around telling you, I did this, and I did this in ministry, and I did this, and I did that. Who cares? I don't care what you did in ministry. Don't tell me, because I don't care. Don't tell me how many years you serve God. Don't tell me about your credentials. Don't tell me. I don't care. I want to know who you are loving today. I want to know how you speak to people day. I want to know if somebody came to you hungry, if you would feed them. I want to know if somebody like my brother came to your church, if you would say, if you associate with him, I want nothing to do with you. That's what I want to know. God looks at your heart. Those are the things that God is looking at in this generation. You see that the church that God is raising up doesn't look like what we think it looks like. It's not going to look like what the church looked like yesterday. It's not going to look like a bunch of people trying to make a nice, friendly Jesus for people to accept. It's going to look like a bunch of people saying, you know what, I'm following him wherever he goes. I'm doing whatever he says because I love him. You know what? And, and what, whatever I did in the past, it doesn't matter. 
Not my victories, not my failures, none of it. None of it. You don't need to know about any of my education. You don't need to know about what I did in the past that was good or bad. What you need to know is about my today. You see, it's pride, it's arrogance, it's all of those things that God resists. It's that kind of sin that God is saying, that's what I resist. Those are the hindrances to righteousness. It's pride. It's pride. It's anger. It's unforgiveness. It's pointing our finger at people like Trump and saying, look at him. Those are the things that God is looking at and saying, those are the things that I am resisting in my church right now. I just want to humble broken people who will go out onto the streets and bring them home because there's too many lost right now. I want a people uh, that will go out there and say, I don't care who you are, where you've been, or what you're doing. Come home. It's time. He wants people who will guard their hearts and say, no matter what assails me, I will keep my heart for God. I won't let bitterness, anger, pride, any of that stuff take root in my heart because that's my number one mandate. I don't care. You know, what do you call the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs. He's like, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You have a great outfit on and you have 50 degrees after your name and you've been to church for 25 years and... And you know what? You look the part. You tithe, you know? You got how many how many credentials in the ministry? And my goodness, you pastored for 20 years and you look great, but your heart is ugly. God isn't interested in that anymore. He said, I want people to pursue righteousness, which is simply right standing with me. I he doesn't care about all of that. He's picking a new people. If you guys haven't noticed, He's raising up a different kind of people in this last days. He's raising up a people who don't look like they used to look. He's not raising up these mega church people anymore. He's not raising up these John MacArthur's anymore. He's raising up people off the streets and saying, hey, if you can just be broken before me and if you can go just love people. And when I say love people, I'm not saying just let them be in their sin and be like everything you will do is okay. No, love them enough to tell them the truth, the full counsel of who God is. Don't leave them in their sin. Love them. But, but to guard their heart, another thing that keeps us from right standing with God is unbelief. You know, in James 1, 6, it tells us that if we do not believe God, we're, we're an unstable man, a double-minded man, unstable in all of our ways. Let not that man expect anything from God. God does not like unbelief. He wants a people who believe that he can and will do anything for us. And expectation is another thing. A church that doesn't expect anything God from God will receive nothing from God. Remember when Elijah was in that cave and he saw, he saw the earthquake and the fire and he was like, oh, that's God. That's God. You know, that expectation from God that, that we're expecting him to come in a certain way. But you know what? God always surprises us. And you know, God's going to surprise us in this day. I believe that this day God is going to surprise us in America. So many people are expecting certain things from God. Somebody are, so many people are expecting God's going to do this and God's going to do this. And there's so many prophets expecting certain things. But you know what? God's going to surprise everyone. He's going to do something they didn't expect. But you know what? we got to quit putting our eyes upon the government. we got to quit putting our eyes upon man. we got to start looking at God and the church. What is our mandate but to lead people to Christ? The only thing that's going to change this nation is transforming the church. 
because the church will transform the nation before any government official will, before any person in any kind of authority will. We have to transform the church. Because if the church doesn't start dealing with the church, nothing will ever change. We've got to quit being apathetic and lazy. We've got to stop looking around and going, hey, we just want to go back to the way things were. We just want to go back, hey, hey, let's just make everything okay. Let's stop the persecution. Let's just go back to things were. We just want to go back to sitting in our pews and telling everybody everything's going to be okay. Why? Why? We need to be a little bit uncomfortable. If we don't get a little uncomfortable, we're going to go back to our lazy ways. We're going to go back to what we were doing before. We need to stop doing what we were doing before because it doesn't work. We need to get we need to get riled up. We need to get riled up and say, you know what? I was lazy. I didn't even care enough to wait upon the Lord to get a rhema word. You know, you know what it costs to get a rhema word from the Lord? You gotta persevere in prayer. Go pray more than ten minutes a day. You gotta spend some time in prayer. You know when you're done praying? When you get the rhema word. If you don't get the rhema word, you're not done praying. That's how you know you're done. God gives you the rhema word, and you're like, oh, I got my word. Okay, I'm going to pray this word through. Now you're done. If you don't get a rhema word, you're not done praying. So many people spend their lives, American Christians, oh my goodness, is it so frustrating. I read my one chapter. I prayed my list. Check, check, check. I'm done. No wonder our, our country's in the position it's in. Go to a third world country and watch them pray, and you'll know why we're in the position we're in. They pray all night long. All night long, they, they, they don't sleep and they pray. No wonder we're in the condition we're in. This is a wake-up call for America, and it's an opportunity. God's saying, I haven't given up on you. I've come to wake you up. I want to give you some rainbow words. I want to give you some power words so that you can see that nothing is impossible for you. When you get that rhema, nothing is impossible for you. So let's spend some time in the presence of God. Let's pursue righteousness. Let's get the rainbow word. Let's turn the church around and do something fantastic again. Let's do something great again. Because God has not given up on America. Amen. Can I just say that? God has not given up on our country. God has a covenant relationship with this country. He's not given up on us. Yep. He's just waiting for the church. He's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to roll over and just say, okay? Or are you going to get up and fight? But I believe that God is saying, I put a stamp on my people and they're going to rise up in this time. They're going to get the rainbow word. They're going to pursue righteousness. How are we going to pursue righteousness? We're going to guard our hearts. You know what? We're going to say, God, we already know this play in church thing, this looking righteous thing, it didn't work. I'm going to actually have a heart in right standing before you. I'm going to stop holding my offenses and my anger and my unforgiveness. I'm going to start being humble before you. I'm going to stop caring about all the degrees behind my name. And I'm actually going to start caring about people again. I'm going to start loving people and I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to sacrifice my life for others because I don't know if the person I just saw is going to die tomorrow. I'm actually going to tell them about you. I'm actually going to tell them that there's a God in heaven who died for them. It's time. It's time. It's not coming time. It's time, church, to rise up. It's time yesterday. It's time. So, Rhema Word, I'm just telling you, we have to start getting it. And the only way to get a Rhema Word is press into the presence of God and spend time with Him. It's the only way. And it comes from the logos. How do you get the logos? You spend time in that Word, that written Word. Amen. So, I'll be reading from Genesis 22. Now, it came about after these things that God had tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, now I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, 
Do you think he Philea loves or Agape loves his son? I want you to take your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. They split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go there, and we will worship and return to you. So there in Genesis 22, we have the first mention of the word worship. So what would you equate that word to? I would equate it to sacrifice, because that's what he was there to do. He was there to sacrifice his only son. God didn't say, I want you to wait until you have a dozen kids, and then you go and sacrifice, because it wasn't meant anything to him. He waited until... He only had one son, and it meant much more to God um, because it was something that was so special to him. So when I think of the term praise and worship, um, I think it's lost a lot of meaning in, in today's culture. We sing a lot of songs that are uh, bereft and devoid uh, of, of the true nature of what God is. Um, to me, those songs are supposed to draw us to what to who God is and what, um, not what he can do for us, because we like to say, here's my laundry list of things, God, I need you to do this, and, and then, I, then I can praise you. Then I can make a sacrifice to you. No, it should be, should, we should be honoring God and praising him for who he is and what he is, not because of what he can do for us. Um, lately, we've been discussing not completely revamping, but introducing, and I know some of you will, uh, will like this, uh, hymns back into our services because the hymns are rich uh, and pregnant with doctrine, doctrine of the gospel, doctrine of God's word, uh, where a lot of times, um, I'll be honest, many praise and worship songs uh, don't have that within them. Unfortunately, most of our songs aren't teaching us what, who God is and what, and what he is. To us, so we're going to be re reintroducing hymns. Um, do any of you know how hymns came about? So during the Protestant Reformation, of which uh, Martin Luther is credited of being the, the forerunner, he was trying to figure out how do I get doctrine, how do I get biblical knowledge into the into the hands of, uh, and hearts and minds of my congregation? Because up until that point, uh, every service was in Latin. And the common person didn't speak Latin. So what he wanted to do is get God's word in, into their hearts and minds. So what he did is he took drinking songs. So on Saturday night, many of the parishioners would go out and tie one on uh, at a tavern, and they knew these melodies. And Martin Luther said, we're already familiar with this melody. I'm going to take this melody, and I'm going to put biblical doctrine to it. And that's how hymns were formed. So uh, Martin Luther and his contemporaries did that. So many of the, the hymns you sing are like the tavern songs from, from that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's cool. Um, like I say, a, a lot of what we're going to be doing is, is still getting flushed out. Um, I think it's in Hosea 4.6. Uh, depending on your version, it says the people perish for lack of knowledge. 
Um, so we're going to be uh, concentrating on, on getting the word into you. I love the fact that we're going over church history. Um, I know some of it, but not to the detail that I feel like I should. Um, I love the direction that, uh, that our pastor is taking us on. Um, trying to think of what else I was going to say. I'm, I am trying to keep this short. I'm a, I'm a little more short-winded than uh, <laughs> the predecessor. <laughs> so, you will thank me for this here in the next minute or two. Because there's still, there's still one more speaker after Jarrell still needs a chance to go. Um, for some reason, I've, God keeps reminding me of um, back in um, Jesus' time, the, the, the disciples performing miracles, and I don't know why, uh, but he brought to mind Simon the sorcerer. And Simon the sorcerer was drawn to the power of Jesus and Jesus' disciples. He wanted to buy that power. And the, the disciples chastised him and said, this isn't something you buy. And God was just reminding me of our motivations, why we do the, the things we do. It isn't so much our outward actions, but our heart, and you've already heard this this morning, it's our heart and our motivations that God is more concerned about than your outward actions. We come here on Sunday and everyone puts on their Sunday best and no one has an ill word to say to one another. But if you go into most congregations, I guarantee that there's some bad blood between two people here. I don't know who they are. They know who they are. So we're supposed to have another, what's that service called? Raise and labor service. Um, God keeps saying, I'm going to come back for a pure and spotless bride. Yep. I don't think that there's any church in existence that's pure and spotless, but God wants us to examine our hearts and how we, mm -hmm. how we associate with one, each other, one another and each other. Uh, and my favorite character in the Bible is David. Um, and we know that David was able to dance before the Lord. So we'll be doing some of that. We're, we're going to introduce some more dancing on Sunday morning. <laughs> Yay. So there's a song, uh, what's it called, More Dignified? Yeah. I don't know who's going to be introducing that, but I, I would like to see you. I would like to see us. It won't be me. I'm not, I'm not one of the worship leaders. But one of the worship leaders is going to introduce that song. And I would love for us to see Saul dancing before the Lord and being more identified. That's all I have this morning. As always, thanks for checking us out. We hope to see you next week. God bless.